I'm actually glad we saw the video today because I think it further emphasizes what we're going to study this morning. I, as I was watching the end of it, I've seen that video about ten times. I was watching the end of it, I thought again of that verse, what is man that you're mindful of him? When it said the farthest galaxy, what was it, was 700,000 light years? And one light year is like 63,000 million miles. It's just crazy. It's crazy when you see how big it is. And yet God cares about in each of us intricately. It, it's, just, it's just an unbelievable reality. And um, I just want to start this morning with prayer, and then we're just going to um, go into our study. We're going to have a little time to break up into groups and talk just a little bit. But um, let's just ask the Lord to bless us this morning. Father, we love you. Um, it is... It is a remarkable thing this morning after watching that video that we can call on your name and hear us and you answer us. When we see the vastness of the universe and the amazing reality of just what we can perceive, we don't even know what's beyond that. And Father, you as the one who has placed every single star and knows every star by name also knows the number of hairs on our head this morning. And you know everything about our lives. You're intimately acquainted with us. And Lord, you also know all of our griefs because Jesus lived through them. Lord, I just pray we'd be blown away by the reality of that this morning. And that as we read these verses, and as we look at this one phrase, which uh, honestly, Lord, to, to our humanity seems hard to believe is true, that we'll remember what we've just watched. And we'll know for a fact by your Holy Spirit that what you're telling us this morning is an unbreakable promise. And that that will change our perception of life. It will change our perception of faith. And it will build in us a confidence and a security in you that you're worthy of. We love you and we praise you, Lord. And thank you for the time that we've had. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's begin today by saying our verse together. Ready? Everybody ready? Are you ready? Have you had your coffee? How many did not have their coffee that needed their coffee? Well, get over it. You had a chance. No, I'm just kidding. All right. Ready? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Ah, oh, you weren't ready. I knew you weren't ready. All right. Start on three. One, two, three. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no one. All right. Now, our final phrase for study is that last one. There is no want, no should be underlined or circled or in some way highlighted. There is no want for those who fear him. Now, yesterday we talked about three types of fear. Let's see how, how well I did. What were the three types of fear? What was the first type of fear? You remember? Awe and reverence, all right? Awe and reverence over the size of God and who God is. What was the second type of fear? Fear of, fear of offending him, that nothing we do in our life should be offensive to the Lord, especially as believers. And the third type of fear was what? Obeying. Obeying because we love and respect him. That, that it's not just an obligation. Well, I've got to obey God and the Ten Commandments and the law. And, no, it's not that. 
that the best, how many know that as a parent, the best type of obedience that you see is not because you demanded it, but because they love and respect you. That it's the best, that, that makes me so proud to be a parent when I see my kids, my kids are older now, but when I saw them, especially younger, they would obey just because I knew they respected me and because they loved me. That was, that was wonderful. How pleased do you think God is when he sees us obeying, not because he demanded it and commands it, but because we love him so much that it's the only thing we want to do. So these are the three types of fear. Now, David says, how blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints. And then there's this last line. For to those who fear him, in other words, it's a connection to the last line. To those who fear him, there is no want. David says this is the benefit out of the first three phrases that are the encouragement, exhortation, uh, command, if you will, the, the, the statements, here's what we need to do. Taste and see, how blessed man takes refuge, fear the Lord, so taste, ble uh, uh, refuge, and fear. Those are our first three exhortations. This is what we need to do. Now God gives us the benefit. When you do those things, when you taste and see, when you take refuge in me, when you fear me in the right way, Here's what I'm going to do. I'm so faithful and so generous that you will have no needs. Now, again, as I prayed, that is a hard verse. That's a hard sentence for us to truly buy into and believe with our whole heart because we automatically are starting to think of a lot of objections. What about this? What about that? What about that? What about that time? I want you to, to just ask the Holy Spirit as I'm talking to just remove any objection we have this morning and just to see the purity of this verse because it says to those who fear him, there is no want, but don't define want the way we usually think of it, which is I want that. I, I want what I desire. I want, I want this. I, I want a nice car. I want a nice house. I want, I want a better job. I want, I want more money in my bank. Don't think of it that way because that's not the meaning of the word. The Hebrew word here means need, lack, or deficiency. So what God is saying to us is that when you fear me and trust me, there will be no need, there will be no lack, and there will be no deficiency. Now, don't answer this out loud, but my question to us at the outset is, do you actually believe that? When you trust the Lord and you fear the Lord in the right way, God promises, the one who made that universe, promises you will have no need, you will have no lack, and you will have no deficiency. This is an absolute, undeniable, confident word from God, so we, in response, should have an absolute, undeniable, confident trust in Him that really we rest our whole life on. And that's what the Lord is saying to us. The Holy Spirit confirms it by putting it in writing. And the only qualification is you have to fear me in these three ways. So do we have that faith? Do we have that confidence that to, to fully depend on the Lord that way? Saying, Lord, you promised if I trust you that way, I'm not going to have need, lack, or deficiency. And how we answer that question that I just asked will really tell us and define for us the, the depth of our faith and how confident we'll be about anything the Lord says. Because if you can't believe the Lord for this promise and I can't believe the Lord for this promise, then why are we going to believe him for other promises? Call on me and I will answer you in the day of your trouble. 
Well, if you can't believe that God's going to supply all your needs, then why would you believe that when you call on him, he's going to answer in the day of trouble? Because it's promise against the promise. Why are some promises more reassuring to us than others? Why do we completely buy into some promises, but we're a little hesitant about the others because it seems outlandish? Well, how can God supply all my needs because of this? I said, no, you got to remove those objections because there really are no objections to this. This is what God says. See, I think what we struggle with sometimes is we kind of passively and kind of silently equivocate our faith. In other words, what do I mean by that? I mean that we buy into the premise of the principle, but we really don't fully believe the reality of the promise. It's a nice thought that God will supply all my needs. That's great. There's no want for those who fear him. But, but Paul, you don't know my reality. Suspend reality for a second because God has a different reality than you do. God's definition of what he's doing and how he supplies is, is different than ours. And because this is an issue that we kind of negotiate our faith, uh, our, our frustration increases. And we start to define no needs in a different way than the Lord does. We are tangible creatures. We think tangibly. So we think what I have, what, what's in front of me. And we're so much more concerned about our earthly priorities than the Lord is. When you see the scope of the universe and you think about the problems that you have facing you when you get back home and you see the vastness of God and you say, my little world in Racine or wherever we live and, and my little problems, which are big problems for us because they're obstacles we've got to get over. But then you look at God and God looks down on us and he's mindful of us. And he says, those little problems you have, are they surmountable or not? Can I handle those or not? Because I put every single one of those stars in the sky and I know in the one that's 400,000 light years away from you that you will never ever see, I know the name of that star just like I know the name that you have and I know the hairs on your head and I know the number of cells in your body and I know the ailments that you have and I know the fact that your toe doesn't look right. I know all that because I'm God. And yet we become so preoccupied. That's why the Bible says, set your mind on things where? Above. <coughs> above. <laughs> set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. Because when we start to think about the things of the earth, we get torn up. Now we say, all right, yeah, that's right. That's a good, that's a good concept. And boy, I need to really embrace that and go back this fall and live. Set my mind on things of above. And then what's the next thing we do? Start thinking about all the things of the earth. Start getting preoccupied with that. Listen, we're not stressed this morning about whether heaven will be wonderful, right? We're not stressed about whether when we get there, God will keep his promise to make us like Christ. We're not, we're not worried this morning whether he'll sanctify us. We're not worried. Uh, we're, not, we're not fearful that, that he won't keep his promise to forgive us. That we'll get to heaven and he'll go, I was just kidding. I, Jesus, that was just a, that was just a you know, a great little joke I played on you humans. You're not really saved. You're going to hell because that's what you deserve. We're not, we're not concerned. I didn't wake up worried this morning going, Lord, when I get to heaven, I hope you don't reject me. We're not, we're not anxious and stressed about, about whether God is faithful. What are we anxious and stressed about? The election, finances, how are we going to manage our schedule this fall, our health, our kids' safety, whether things are going to work out, what lies ahead in the future, how are we going to do this and this, when's our next vacation, how will we manage that stress in our life, what about that person that's crooked? Those are all the things that we're stressed about, 
and those are all temporary and they have very little eternal significance. That doesn't mean they're not important and it doesn't mean we shouldn't be concerned about them. What it does mean is that unless we have full confidence in God's sufficiency and provision, we're going to be overwhelmed by those things. And you know, the devil is, is very crafty. I'm not going to say he's wise because I'm not going to give him that credit. As wise as the Lord, the devil's crafty. He's sneaky. And all he loves to do is wait for the moment where we kind of catch our breath. And then he brings in a new load of stress and a new load of anxiety and a new load of fear and a new load of problems. And we go, oh, again? Okay, well, I'll get through this. I'll trust the Lord. And we get to our, oh, and then the devil goes, watch this. This is going to be great. Because that's how he works. And if we don't fall back on the one who is faithful and we don't keep tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, we're going to get beaten down. So go back to this verse and look at this promise again. To those who fear the Lord, there is no want. There is no need. Now, there are two very substantial issues that the enemy is going to use against us to try to initiate an environment of distrust about that sentence. There are two things the devil's going to do that, that he's going to, to build, to try to build in us a disbelief that what God is saying in Psalm 34, 9 is absolutely true. The first one is misguided priorities, and the second one is false theology, okay? Misguided priorities naturally come from the fact that our primal human instinct is to want. We want, all right? So let's, let's interact a little bit this morning. What are some of the things that we want out of life? What do you want out of life? Can be good, can be bad, can be, you know, what do, you, what do we want out of life? Just give me some basic things. Shelter, Shelter good. Good job. Job. Peace. Peace. Financial security. Financial security. A house that does what? Fits your kids. Food. Clothing. Good health. You missed a really, really big one. Water. Water. Yeah, <laughs> it's a really big one. Peace. Peace. Love. We all want love, we all want acceptance, we all want relationships, respect, security, pleasure, the list goes on and on. There are lots of things we want, and we would qualify many of those as needs, but many of those are also just wants. It is built into our human DNA that we want things. And I'll tell you how you can see it. You can see it in a little baby, right? We got some great little babies on this trip. I love seeing the babies. And when they want, how do they let us know? Do they just kind of stare around like, oh, oh, somebody, oh, somebody notices that I have a want. Now, what do they do? They cry out, right? Because they all they can do is like, you know, their head's going like this and their arms are going like this. And they're like, I need some help here. Is somebody pay attention to me? Nobody's coming right now, so I'm going to start crying. Or I'm going to start fussing. So a little baby wants a food or, or a diaper change or they just want to be held or they want somebody to play with them. So they express their needs. Then you have toddlers, right? How many of you guys have toddlers? 
And toddlers show their needs in a plethora of ways. But if you really want to see a, a toddler's wants, throw them in Toys R Us and walk away. That you won't see him for 30 minutes. No, I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that. Everything is there. And if they really, really want, and you're saying no, which as adults we have to say very often, then sometimes they'll get real feisty and upset. I want that! They fall down on the ground, whatever. They're showing their want. Now, now even teenagers, if they're not getting respect or they're not getting enough freedom or whatever the world teenagers want, I hope somebody will tell me what teenagers want because they don't know. But, but most, I'm kidding, it was a joke. But you know, teenagers, teenagers start, to, start to gain that sense of freedom and that sense of autonomy and, and they want space and they want privacy and they want, they want to be able to go. And, and so there's, they have their own wants. Then as adults, we get into a lot of wants. We want security, we want love, we want financial stability, we want a nice house, we want cars that'll run and not break down, we want a good job, and if our, and if our wants get out of control, what happens? We become materialistic, we lust, we, we um, push away from relationships that we should have, we push away from the Lord, we develop vices, we want power, we want authority. All these things, and, and as we desire this freedom and this control and, and, and all these options and no limits and to have it our way and to do what we want, that starts to create all kinds of havoc. Now, when the Lord says to those who fear me, there is no want, he's not talking about those. He's not talking about what we want because his plans are far more beneficial to us than our plans are. And if we don't buy into that, if we don't believe that, if we think, well, God's plans are good, yes, and I, I get it, the universe is big, and God cares about me, and that's good, but, but there are certain things, Paul, I want out of life. Well, that's fine, but that's not the wants that God's going to bless. The wants that God's are going to bless are the things that we really, really need. So when God says, to those who fear me, those no want, Part of what the devil's going to do is keep trying to misguide our priorities. And the second issue that is messing a lot of people up is false theology. And I'm kind of hesitant to even use the word theology because theology is the study of God. And the teaching that we're seeing becoming more and more popular is not anything about God. It's about us. So let me give you a couple quotes this morning by a few well-known preachers who are so popular in preaching this pablum to the masses. Let me just, just hear what's being said within the Christian world by people that are being followed by tens and hundreds of thousands of people, okay? Quote, Jesus had a nice house, a big house, and he was handling big money and even wore designer clothes. The statement to argue that we should have all those things too. Another one said, when we pray, believing that we've already received what we're praying, God has no choice but to make our prayers come to pass. It's the key to getting results as a Christian. Still another one said, realize that when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. We're doing it for ourselves. Do good for your own self. I think that's in Matthew. Do it because God wants you to be happy. So when you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. And then there was this little nugget. If you want success, 
If you want wisdom, if you want to be prosperous and healthy, you're going to have to do more than meditate and believe. You must boldly declare words of faith and victory over yourself and your family. In other words, God will make you prosperous if you will just declare words of victory. So we're going to do this this morning because I want victory and I want to be wealthy. So on one, two, three, we're going to say, I am a winner. I want money. Okay? Because, because that's what they told me is going to work. All right? So on three, one, two, three, I'm a winner. I want money. Ready? One, two, three. I'm a winner. I want... You guys didn't... Why didn't you do that? <laughs> something wrong there, right? And I said it. I'm waiting for my money. I don't have any. And then this false understanding of God and what he does now leads to heresy. And I'm not talking little heresy. I'm talking strong heresy. And it produces statements like this, quote, the bottom line is that the Holy Spirit never convicts you of your sins. He never comes to point out your faults. That was said by one of the most popular prosperity, uh, prosperity preachers in our country who's written multiple books that have sold millions of copies and is followed by tens of thousands of people. Let me read that statement again. The bottom line is that the Holy Spirit never convicts you of your sins he never comes to point at your faults. Now, can anyone think of a single verse in Scripture that verifies any of those statements? As one evangelical writer said in this teaching, God is reduced to a kind of cosmic bellhop according to the needs and desires of his creation. The relationship between God and man is essentially turned into a quid pro quo transaction. But the bottom line is that God is there to serve us and meet our needs and make us happy. Again, that's nowhere in the Bible and it's actually offense to the Lord and his grace and mercy. Now think about what Christians are saying and these are the most popular teachers in our country. God, you don't come to church to worship God. Why would you worship God? God just wants you to be happy. So as long as you're happy, as long as you leave the worship service feeling good about yourself and happy and declaring words of victory. God's satisfied. God, God's good with that. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our praise. He just, he just says, do it for yourselves. Just declare what you want from me and bing, 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 I will meet your needs. That is not Psalm 34.9. In any way, shape, or form, God is not teaching that I will satisfy all your wants and desires because I have to. And because if I don't do that, oh no, you're not going to be happy. So I better, I better make sure I do it because, oh, heaven forbid, you are not happy. It is not God's job to make us happy. We're the ones who make ourselves unhappy by sin. If we would just walk in the will of the Lord, we would know that Paul says in Philippians 4.11, I've learned to be content in all things. Why? Because if you look at the rest of the chapter, everything else is lined up perfectly with how we should walk with the Lord. It's only at the end of thinking on the right things and praising God in all things and calling on his name and trusting in him and getting our minds on things above. It's only when Paul sets all that up in Philippians 4, 1 to 10, that he gets to verse 11 and says, okay, now I've learned, this is, this is my experience here, 
I've learned how to be content. When we have a true, correct, biblical understanding of who the Lord is and who we are, and then we live in that correct fear of him and we live in trust of him, then, look at the verse, then God says, I will absolutely provide everything you need and there will be no lack or deficiency. David says in Psalm 23, 1, what? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not tell me. Want. And I don't have any needs. Because he's my strength, my protection, my comfort, my provider, my leader. And he will never, ever fail me. David knew that was true. He had experienced that it's true. And we know it too. Now maybe you're sitting there thinking, that's a nice concept. But, but you don't know my life. I have needs. I've asked the Lord to help me. I'm still not where I need to believe, uh, to, to be. And, and I want to believe that he'll provide. I do, Paul. I really want to believe that he'll provide. But he hasn't. Well, we're going to address that in a few minutes. But, but let me give you a very loving response to, to that thought that the devil is exacerbating in your mind. Look at where you are today. You're at a beautiful, safe Christian camp. You're surrounded by people who love the Lord and love you. You have a place to sleep the night. You have plenty of food to eat. You say, well, you know, I had to have some assistance to come here. Yeah, and God provided that, didn't he? The Lord provided that for you. We have children and grandchildren that right now are being taught the word of God by, by people who care about them. They're being told about eternal life. We have an eternal future. You and I get to hold God's word in our hands today, and we get to study it. We can understand it because God's redeemed us, and his Holy Spirit teaches us. Amen. We have a church at home that honors the Lord, full of people who love the Lord and love us. We have a fall and winter ahead of us that the Lord already has plans for. They're plans that he says are too wonderful for you to imagine. So while we may be struggling, and I don't want to minimize that, it doesn't change the fact that God is faithful and he will provide when we trust him. Amen. He will. We talk Sunday about crisis. Every crisis we've ever had, we've gotten through. How do I know that? Because we're here. The crisis didn't stop us. It didn't change us. It may have changed us for the good, but, but we're still here. So is, are things going to happen this fall? Yeah. Are there going to be difficulties? Absolutely. There are going to be times where we're sitting on the couch going, I don't know what to do next. There may be, but you know what? That doesn't change God's faithfulness. What we have to do is we have to take responsibility for what we have done. And this is where it gets hard. We have to take responsibility for the ways that we, by our attitudes and our actions, have adversely affected our confidence in the Lord. Because God is never... Uh, uh, insufficient for our confidence. So if there's a lack of confidence, who is that on? It's on us. And there are some changes that we need to make in our thinking and in our actions to change our perspective and to increase our confidence in the Lord. Now, I was going to have us break into groups, but we're a little tight on time. So let's just go forward with it and I'll give you some of them. And then maybe during your family devotions or during lunch, you can talk about some more. But but let me give you uh, maybe four or five ideas here of things that we need to take responsibility on and, and changes we need to make. And, and these kind of feed out of our three studies that we've already had. 
but, but we'll kind of expand on them a little bit. Okay, number one, here's some things we need to do to make some changes. Number one, we need to redefine need. We need to redefine need. Now, this is a challenge to our thinking because we are in such a tangible consumer society that we're constantly being pushed to have more, 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 more. If you live through the 80s, what was the 80s? Great decade for music, right? Great decade for fashion. I love the 80s. Great decade for our country, Ronald Reagan. And we have paid, but, but the 80s were about what? Financial growth. Now that was good from an economic standpoint, but it made Americans very materialistic. So we live in a culture that is constantly pushing to have more and have more. And it's interesting to me that the millennial generation seems to be pushing back on that. They seem to be focused on accumulating less, not being in debt like their parents, not having as much streamlining, having, having less things because they've seen their parents and maybe they're even into grandparents become obsessed with it. But the cost of the obsession has been what? Increased debt and less contentment. It's been divided families. It's been uh, disconnect from, culture, uh, from, from each other. And, and as we've gotten more, there's been really less. So what we need to do is we need to come down to a core list of what we really, really need. And that list is very small. The new iPhone is not on that list. It's not. We define need by stuff, but we need very little. And part of the devotion time today with your family is to discuss what our needs are so we can help start to begin or continue to give our kids perspective on what do you really need and what do you want. So number one thing that we're going to need to take responsibility for and change is how we define need. Number two, we need to restructure our priorities. We need to restructure our priorities. If we feel discontented or, or somehow dissatisfied with how the Lord's working in our lives, here's a little clue. The problem is never with him. If we feel frustrated, discontented, I don't like the Lord's timing, it's not going the way I thought, why am I doing this, why am I here, why, why does this trial take place? It is never on the Lord that the Lord's the one who's wrong. It is always our perspective and our priorities. So we need to look real closely at how we live, the choices we make, the way we spend our time, what's important to us. And we need to see if we're more concerned about our self-interest than we are about the things of the Lord. And the answer to that question is always yes, we are. We're more concerned about what we have, what we want, how we want life to go than we are about the things of the Lord. And, and part of spiritual maturity is increasingly becoming more concerned about what the Lord wants than about what we want. That's what it means to die to self. We talk about that phrase all the time, but what does it mean? It means I love the priorities of the Lord more than I love the priorities of me. That my mind is set on things of heaven more than on things of earth. That I trust the Lord more than I worry. That, that's what dying to self means. And if you aren't feeling close to the Lord this morning, you need to really assess how much priority and time am I actually giving to be in his presence? How much priority and time am I giving to be in his word? If you're struggling in your relationships, 
Take responsibility for your actions. Stop blaming the other person. We, we do that as couples, right? I love it when I get into counseling. I've told you this story. Let me tell you again for those who haven't heard it. When I get a couple into counseling and they're, and they're pointing at each other and I've actually had, you know, physical where they turn their chairs toward each other like it's a, and now in this corner, I mean, it's that, that like, whoa, like physically they're facing off here. And I say to couples when they come into counseling, for the next 15 minutes, I don't want you to say a negative word about that person. In fact, I don't even want you to talk about your spouse. I want you to tell me what you've done wrong. What is your part in this relationship that has caused this stress and this division? And the first words, probably 95% of the time, the first words out of the person's mouth after I give two minutes of instructions, do not talk about them, talk about you. The first words out of their mouth are, yes, but, and they like actually physically point, and I'm like, time out, let's listen to the instructions again. Do not talk about them. And then you see the reality come over their face like, wait a second, so you're telling me I've got to take responsibility? I'm like, that's exactly the point. Because when we start to take responsibility, when I take responsibility for how I talk to my wife, how I treat my wife, how I nurture my wife, how I love my wife, or how I don't, then the problem is not her, the problem is me. But we don't like taking responsibility for me. It's a lot easier to go, yeah, but you did that, and you said that, and you didn't do that, and you always had that attitude, and then, and then, and and that's how fights start, that's how division starts in marriages. But if your only thought is, what do I do to change this relationship. It doesn't have to be marriage. It can be your relationship with your kids, relationship with your friends, relationship with your coworkers. It doesn't matter. When we take responsibility for us and stop blaming the other person and then say, Lord, change my heart. Lord, change me to be humble. Change me to be sacrificial. When you start to pray that way, I promise you your marriage will change. I promise you your relationship with your kids will change. Third part of that is that if your faith is weak, we need to evaluate how much we're focusing on our circumstances and what might happen and how much we're surrendering to the Lord and praying. Because we become so pent up with anxiety of what might happen. So part of restructuring our priorities is to say, Lord, help me, help me now. Stop focusing on my present and stop worrying about my future and just give me contentment now in you. All right, so number one, redefine need. Number two, restructure your priorities. Number three, we need to re-examine our heart. Remember the verse says, for those who fear him, there's no want. So the real simple question under this one is, do you fear the Lord? Do you fear the Lord? We defined it three different ways yesterday. So the questions are, are you holding on to sin? Are you allowing it to control you? Are you harboring resentment and lack of forgiveness? Are, are you hesitant or even refusing to trust the Lord fully? Are, are you spiritually negligent, careless, indifferent about maturing in faith? Are you not prioritizing enough time in the word and in prayer? In other words, what's our responsibility? How are we 
creating the environment of discontent in the Lord because he's never negligent. He's never indifferent. He's never insufficient. That's why David says, search me and know me and see if there's any wicked way in me. Three times in one verse, Lord, it's about me. It's about the problem in me. So Lord, find what's going on with me and change it. That's a gutsy prayer. We have to look at the buildings. Let's go back to two days ago. We have to look at the buildings in our harbor. And Julie made a good suggestion that she is. We literally should diagram this. Like we should draw a picture of the buildings in the harbor and say, what are my buildings? What, what are they? Is, is it one big house because I'm completely focused on family? Is it, is it media? Is it like there is like the Facebook headquarters, you know, in my harbor, like there's nothing else? Is there, you know, just pick something. Preoccupations, is there, are there 19, you know, malls there? Because I just, I, when, I'm, when I'm discontented, I buy. What is it? But I would almost say before the week's done, take some time and draw your harbor. And what are the stores that are there? What are the buildings that are there? Because we really have to evaluate that's our priorities. And if that's our priorities and they're not things of the Lord, I promise you as I'm standing before you in Iowa on August 18, 2016, you will never, ever, ever be fulfilled. It'll be like a diet of junk food. When you eat junk food, what happens? You crave more, you don't crave less. You, you just never feel fulfilled. You're kind of always hollow and not satisfied. If I just had another Snickers, I think it would be better. Or if I eat more Pringles, I, 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 maybe that crunch will satisfy me and I'll be happy. No, I didn't get the right number. I only had three. I need to stack four this time. And if I stack four, I'll be happy. And then you eat half a can and I've done this. And you go, oh man. Remember Daniel? Veggies and water, bring it on. We, we don't want the gravy. We have a diet sometimes of junk food spiritually in our lives. And you know what? It just leaves you wanting more junk. The more you get that out of your life and the less you eat it. One of my kids, I won't tell you which one because I don't like talking about my kids in embarrassment. But one of my kids keeps saying to me, you sure you want that? And it started to annoy me at first, but now I'm hearing it. Are you sure you want that? Are you sure you want that cookie? And they're not trying to be annoying. They're trying to help me. But I need to lose some weight. Are you sure you want that? That's how I make you feel bad. We have to look at our lives spiritually, re-examine our heart and say, you're gonna do, are you sure you want that? Holy Spirit says, there's the door right there. There's a way of escape. Get away from it. I don't know. I, boy, it's going to bring me some pleasure right now. You sure you want that? There's a door. If you just walk out the door, you'll be so happy, you won't even let, you won't even think about it. Just, just go out the door I gave you. Re-examine our heart. Last one. And by the way, when we do that aggressively, we're gonna start to see breakthroughs in our life. Number four, last one. We need to reorient our thinking to be heavenly. Our affections, the Bible says, should be on the things of heaven. Why? Because that's our home. Please hear this at the end of this week. This is not our home. I'm not talking about Lansing. I'm not talking about Racine and Kenosha. I'm saying earth is not our home. And once we know that we're pleasing heaven 
and we're planning for heaven, and that's our priority, it will change the way we think and live. That, again, I come back to Philippians 4 and spend some time reading through Philippians 4 today. Maybe read it five or six times. It's like 21 verses long, I think. Philippians 4 is my favorite chapter of the Bible. It, it pretty much tells you everything you need to know. Philippians 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Be anxious for nothing and learn to be content in all things. Not happy. Please hear that. The word content does not mean happy. You just come and say things and worship for you and you'll be happy. No. Paul wasn't talking about something that shallow and hollow. He was saying, learn to completely trust the Lord. And when you completely trust the Lord, you will experience peace and contempt and security that cannot be explained. Why? Because Philippians 4 and Psalm 34 go together. And you know what Paul's conclusion was? This is straight out of Psalm 34. My God will supply all your, tell me, all your needs according to who? Riches and glory through Christ. The Bible is beautiful because it was written over thousands of years and it says the same thing from start to finish. What David wrote sitting in some field or some cave, for those who fear the Lord, there is no one. Paul, thousands of years later, sitting in a jail cell about to die, said, my God will supply all your needs according to Christ. And when we get that, we will say, taste and see the Lord's good. Oh, how blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. See, it's progressing of theology. If you'll taste, you'll discover that God's good. And once you discover God's good, you want to take refuge in him. And once you take refuge in him, you'll realize just how awesome he is. And you'll fear him. And once you fear him, you'll realize God will supply everything. It's beautiful. Two verses that tell you all you need to know about how to be content. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, we love you, and we thank you for how you've taught us this week. And we pray now, Lord, that you would really, really help us. That we would not be fearful of the plans you have for us and fearful of new experiences because you're good and because you're faithful and because you're holy. So, Lord, give us a bold, confident faith to taste and see that you're good. Father, help us to realize that the place that is the greatest place of blessing is when we're taking refuge in you. And, Lord, that's not just hiding. That's living boldly for you, like David running toward Goliath. Lord, help us to understand that when we taste and we see that the Lord is good and that we're blessed for taking refuge in him, you, Lord, that we can fear you in the right way. And when we fear the Lord as those that you have set apart and made holy and declared holy, Father, that when we fear you, we will have no wants, we'll have no needs. So restructure our thinking, restructure our priorities, and give us a contentment, Lord, in you. Lord, I pray this fall that this group of people, Father, that we would learn what it is to be content in you to have peace that passes all understanding, filling our hearts and minds through Christ. That we'd set our minds on the things of above and not things of earth. And Lord, that you would transform us 
in a fresh way that, that the infectiousness of our passion, Lord, would infect our church, would infect our friends and our families. And Lord, that you would produce revival in our midst simply because we were willing to trust you. Father, we thank you for your magnificence. We thank you for your awesomeness. We thank you for your holiness. And we pray that you'd work in a mighty way. Thank you for being so faithful, Lord. Thank you for keeping your promises. You are an amazing God, and we love you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.